0: All right, ladies and gentlemen, no nonsense. Back again for part two with Kirby Kaplan-Siegel. I gave these extensive, well, not just very brief uh, introductions of these three guys. I know them so well. We did the Canada AM political panel every Thursday morning for what seems like a 100 years. And uh, they're just guys who understand how this Country functions. They're smart. They bring their perspectives. So, we've had a really good discussion, and I want to keep going on things uh, economic because uh, we're looking at a budget for the first time in two years. Uh, lots of discussion at the political conventions. So, Michael Kirby and Jerry Kaplan and Hugh Siegel, let's have some views on this. And and let me just start by saying, what was the role? And I want to hear from Michael on this of Mark Carney. Um, going to the Liberal convention and saying I will do anything I can to support the Liberal Party um, is that to help people focus on the climate? Does he bring credibility? Is he looking to run for a seat? Is it going to affect the budget? Like, what was what was that about in the in the week leading up to this?
1: Well, at first, I won't affect the budget. The budget would have been locked in several weeks ago, right? But, but in any event, um, I don't uh, have any inside information of what the information was, other than the fact that Carney's a big name, Carney has a lot of respect among the business community and among a lot of individual Canadians, and to the extent that you can have a convention where you can get a really big outside star to come and endorse you, which is what he did, Mm -hmm. I think that's terrific. Now, is that a forerunner to a political career? It may be. I think there are a lot of people in the party who would like it to be as a natural successor uh, as a, to the prime minister. I think you have to begin to wonder when you look at the Ignatiev example, although that's a bad example because yeah. Ignatieff hadn't lived in Canada for many many years, and yet they brought him back from. Harvard and Boston to run, why they thought a guy who'd never lived in Canada could possibly be prime minister is a different issue. In Carney's case, that's not the, the case. He didn't leave the country for a while to become governor of the Bank of England, but he's basically lived his life in yeah. Canada. So the, the Born question,
0: in the north and raised in Alberta. and yeah. Right.
1: So the, the question there is, how would, uh, would he do in the rough and tumble of day-to-day politics, but you never know until someone becomes leader how that's the case. Mm-hmm. So my expectation would be that either he will run in the next election, uh, which I think is likely, mm-hmm. uh, with a clear understanding that he's uh, going to become the heir apparent, or uh, or not. Uh, and I don't know why he would have done that speech unless he at least wanted to keep that option open. I don't I doubt if he's made a decision, right. but uh, the option is certainly there for him now that it was much better than it would have been had he not done that
0: speech. OK, so, Hugh, let me put this question so we will see Christia Friedland put forward her first budget uh, and a first female finance minister of a party who claims that it is the most feminist uh, government and party that we've ever seen. Uh, can they skip Christia Friedland, um, finance minister as leader and go to Mark Carney? So I don't think that's a
2: decision the Liberals in any way, shape or form have to make at any proximate period of time. Um, okay. I, I would go back to what I think is the core electoral model in Canada, why governments get elected and why they get defeated. And in the end, the core decision that voters make is not necessarily about policy in this direction or that direction, or even about leader A or leader B in terms of their personal characteristics or ideology. It's really about Canadians' conclusion, election by election. (laughs) It's called the managerial default. Which of the political parties and their leaders and candidates is most likely to be able to manage circumstances in the future, which are now as, now, as we speak, unforeseen. So they make a judgment about competence, about team, and about leadership ability, and whether it's left, right, or center may not be as significant as whether or not those other criteria are met. And I think the value, first of all, to the Liberals of having Christopher Freeland as finance minister and a very competent uh, foreign and trade minister with dealing with NAFTA and all of that is very much in their interest. It adds to the sense of competence of their team and any involvement from Carney only strengthens the managerial default position, which is where Canadian voters go when they have no other strong reason to go one way or another. So whether he comes on as a senior advisor or whether he stays as an advocate in the business community or whether he runs for a seat, becomes part of the team, Uh, There are differences, certainly in his life, but in terms of the general perception about who has the managerial competence, which is why, by the way, as Michael will recall and Jerry will recall from our political organizing days, you always tried to find candidates to join the existing team who reinforce the positive and qualitative uh, perception of the team overall. And his, his engagement at the Liberal meeting, I think, was very positive that way, but I wouldn't prejudge the dynamic around him and Christian, I think it would be premature to do so. And I think from her perspective, I mean, one has picked up rumors that the notion of him speaking at the convention and all of that mm-hmm. wasn't necessarily on the top of her hit list for understandable reasons. <laughs> but that being said, she's right. conducted herself always in a completely professional and competent way. And the budget will be her great opportunity to say, here's one guy in the window with a whole bunch of stuff to offer Here's some meat and potatoes from the person who happens to be Minister of Finance, the first female in the history of the country. So, you know, it's, it's not a bad balance. If you're a liberal, you can sit back with the popcorn and say, this is all good. Every scene in this movie is better <laughs> than the last one.
0: So, Jerry, if that is the assessment and we have no point of comparison because the governments that are in power are in power and they've had to manage COVID for better or worse. um, Do they get judged on the competence or the managerial issue uh, just based on that and and things albeit belated and slowly and in some cases confused and all of that? But essentially, we've had a plan.
3: Well, I don't know. I think you're right. Managerial uh, competence is always the, uh, the issue people look for. And that's why uh, so much of the work that we have spent our life doing has been useless because it's all, it's all been about finding the right slogan or finding the right candidate or finding out something that nobody but the Paul. But the politicians (laughs) cared about you.
0: You're you're just such a ray of sunshine, you know? know, I think think we should have a
2: rule now that you can't get a liquor license (laughs) for a testimonial dinner unless the person who is the subject of that testimonial dinner calls Jerry first. (laughs) So he he or she can be told that actually... Nothing you did was of any value, but enjoy know, dinner.
3: It <laughs> yes, I think it's usually true. Um, uh, no, uh, let's see. So where was I?
0: Um, so what's your team going to oh. do? Is your team then going to support the government in the budget and say, "Well, look, this is not the time. We can't be having an election in the middle of a COVID crisis, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. Well, I think they um, will do
3: that, but I think they'll do that uh, at the same time as they'll continue to take credit. Uh, for the uh, special funding that's going to go out to um, that that they that they have pushed and that the liberals in fact are going to introduce, so the NDP is in the funny, awkward, almost impossible position, and they're looking like they're getting more trapped in it every day, of pushing something that they're not going to get credit for. Uh, they we can say all we want is we have all our all our existence. Uh, old age pension came in because of us and. This came in because of us, but nobody is thanking the NDP for Tommy Douglas introducing Medicare. Uh, If anybody remembers, they remember it as, who knows, somehow or other, it's just Canadian now. So there's no more political uh, gains to to win. So I, I think the NDP is in a very tough and awkward position, and I don't see them getting out of it. Uh, probably at all. As for Mark Carney, let me say that I know exactly what he was doing the other day. Mark Carney's been living in London, as we all know, uh, which in my view is the second most exciting city in the world after New York. And he was back Mm. in Ottawa and he was just bored silly. And he thought maybe he'd go to a convention and uh, write a book and go to a convention. Spend a few minutes with old friends. Unlike uh, Ignatieff, uh, who only knew the people he had known when he was at university. And Mark Carney, mm-hmm. when he was governor of the bank, got to know every player in Ottawa. Uh, he was like those uh, MPs or cabin ministers we read about who go out every single night to some bar or other and, and schmooze and make pals for whatever purpose. And so I think... Yeah, he or played that. hockey and did that. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Or played hockey. Played it wasn't hockey. always a part. Never yeah. was to, to be
3: part of the gang, and <laughs> yeah. he remains yeah. part of the gang. As for when he, whether he's running or not, doesn't seem to me there's the slightest doubt that he will run. Uh, the problem of being the governor of two of the world's biggest banks is that there's uh, not a hell of a lot left for you to do to uh, to keep your thumbs twiddling. You know, he's got to find something. Being prime minister of Canada probably be a good part-time job for him.
0: Yeah. Being being a a backbencher might not be. Mike, are we going to are we going to have an election? I mean, everybody's protesting. No,
1: no. And and first of all, when you have a minority government, typically you don't get an election called by the government unless there's some particularly advantageous reason for doing so you sometimes try to engineer your own defeat Mm -hmm. uh, or sometimes like Joe Clark, you're silly enough to let defeat happen by accident. But uh, the reality is that I don't think any of the opposition parties want an election. I don't think Canadians want an election in the midst of COVID. So I think nothing happens until at least the fall. And then you look at the fall and you say, OK, uh, we've been two years since the last election. The COVID is more or less over. I'm not necessarily predicting that. I'm just I'm saying. Right. Hoping. If, yeah, hoping. And if that <laughs> was the case. Then I think you might decide to call an election, but I don't think there's a snowball's chance in hell it's going to be one this spring because none of the opposition parties uh, want one and you'd have to have them all wanting one in order to uh, cause an election You
2: have to think about um, something which you would understand and and Michael and I would understand because we've worked in Ottawa in that circumstance and so would Jerry. The famous six-year rule, right? If you're in parliament and you serve as a parliamentarian for six years, you begin to get a pension, which is 3% a Correct. year of your best salary, yeah. whatever. So so there's a whole bunch of people in the block, particularly some in the NDP, mm-hmm. not as many, but some, some in the liberals and even some in the conservatives, but mostly it's liberals, New Democrats and bloc members who have no interest in any election taking place one moment sooner than would otherwise be the case because they want to get as close to their six years, if not over as possible. So that's another factor that will work against a premature election.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it certainly does on that. So what are we going to see? I mean, obviously in the budget, there's going to be great, huge promises. We're all living through something called the modern monetary theory where Spending just seems to go on endlessly. We just print more money, and we say, "Don't worry about it because the interest rates are low, so we can just keep at it." Some of the, the folks that uh, that I work with just t- we can't even think about paying o- off debts or deficits until twenty sixty one. Like, do we? Does nobody care about this anymore? Is this just a product of the so circumstance? I
2: think, I think some uh, people do care, and I think that one of. Christia Freeland's challenges will be to put in some rational fiscal anchors into her presentation that, doesn't, that do not say we cannot spend what we need to spend to rebuild the economy if necessary, but gives her some flex points, but also says within 10 years, we have to be here. We have to have reduced our overall deficit to at least this, if not to zero, and start to pay down debt. I think she can establish that without really limiting the government's capacity to do what's absolutely necessary. And look, if you assume that when the last budget came in 700 years ago under this government, nobody expected the COVID event, right? And then, you know, the the expenditures went through the roof for understandable reasons. We have not begun to figure out what's going to happen to the U.S. economy as a result of the many trillions of dollars being invested by the new Biden administration to their credit in COVID and economic recovery and reduction of poverty and a whole bunch of other things. But generally speaking, 20 percent of what happens in that part of the world has has a positive impact on our economy. So we may find, frankly, that by this time next year, whatever she was planning to spend, becomes clear it's not necessary. And some of it can be redirected into into a debt reduction, by the way, because the U.S. recovery. And will by be the way, way. Yeah. that's what happened with Paul Martin. He did that very tough budget, yeah. which everybody, you know, cut transfer payments and all that stuff to the provinces. And then because of a whole bunch of really good things, economic recovery, I might mention the GST and the revenue it produced. And free trade, (laughs) he was awash in cash. And I remember the year, and so does Michael, and so does Jerry, where not only was he able to reduce the debt, but he was pre-funding foundations, research foundations, so that his numbers wouldn't come in too good, because then the demand for more spending would be over the top. We could find ourselves in a similar circumstance much more quickly, not because of what we're doing, but because of the extent to which we depend upon flows from the United States.
0: For sure. Michael.
2: Well,
1: Pam, one thing you've got to have, though, is you've got to have some clear stated measure on the part of the government so the public have some understanding as to whether what they're doing is consistent with their policy or not. Now, we've always used jet, debt to GDP ratio. Uh, right. The problem with that was debt, it was easy to, to measure. GDP was a, a concept that most people's eyes glazed over. Right. You might have seen that David Dodge, the former Deputy Minister of Finance, the former governor of the Bank of Bank Canada, of
0: Canada. That,
1: yeah. that that measure be replaced by one that's much easier to handle, which is interest as a percentage of revenue, and that interest costs, as long as they t- stay at less than 10% of government revenue, was perfectly fine. At the present moment, it's around 4 or 5%. Uh, and, you know, if you want to go back to when Khrushchev came in at the government, it was up in the 30s. So, uh, you know, there are lots of times when that measure has been way, way, way out of whack. The beauty of that is, A, people understand it because they can relate it. To their own spending, how much yeah, their money,
0: own finances, how right.
1: much their own finances am I actually spending on interest? It's it's easy to understand. As long as interest rates remain low, it allows you to keep doing the spending uh, you want to do. And so I would at least hope that there would be some commitment to some let's say, guardrails like that that would put in place a, a constraint on where you can go ultimately without causing you any short-term problem at the present moment because you're way below the 10% that Dodge proposed.
3: Let me add another uh, perspective. brief. Briefly, I know that uh, you're getting a little anxious about time. Uh, for, for the last 40 or 50 years, the Western world has been in the thrall of conservative economics. Most of it came out of the Chicago School, uh, and the Koch brothers and all across the Western world, foundations were created and institutions were created, which pumped out the news that budgets had to be balanced, that that uh, um, budgets that, that were in uh, debt uh, were, were to be uh, avoided with life. And this had a very immediate political um uh, ramification, and it was that the Democrats in the United States, the labor in Britain and the NDP and sometimes the liberals here were all barking up a tree that these guys were proving was uh, the wrong tree to bark up. Uh, uh, and I remember clearly how Bob Ray's government in the early nineties got beat up repeatedly for having a budget that had been given to them by the depression that occurred exactly when they got elected. They could do nothing about, and that was never compared to the to the uh, budget uh, the budget problems that some of the Western con- uh, conservative governments had at the same time. I remember writing about uh, about this, uh, and the same in the United States, where uh, there was a craze among Republicans to beat up anybody who wanted to talk about a deficit budget until Ronald Reagan came in and left after two, two terms in office, this vast, huge budget that not a single conservative cared about. They were too busy uh, uh, fighting their wars in, uh, in Central America uh, and, uh, and with Iran. Uh, so when we talk this way about uh, how far we can go, I think we should remember that there's still, I believe, somewhere in the hearts of uh, Canadians, a fear that uh, somehow this has to be Uh, restrained in some way or another. And anyone who doesn't honor that restraint is going to look for trouble at some stage.
0: Well, but I think that is there's a pragmatism, you're right. And and people sort of thinking we shouldn't spend beyond our means. And I don't know, it's certainly true in in my world and in the part of the world that that I live in, you know, um, people are sometimes even still a little suspicious of banks, uh, you know, but, but saving and keeping cash and, and not spending more than you have, but, but now we're seeing the other, and we started this in, in the last conversation that everything today is an imperative. You know, we have to fix the, uh, the, the uh, the environment that we have to fund anything that's green we had a minister say that the other day if there's if it's if it's got green attached to it just write the check just fund it um the we have to help everybody through covid we have to deal with uh food insecurity i mean the list is long and if everything's an imperative then Nothing's an imperative michael that's that's part well, of the theory I, uh, that
1: that's right and and people will raise everything to be imperative and I think the budget right the leaks on the budget have said that the imperative is going to be uh, early childhood education and and daycare and so on so uh, working women can get back to working if they want and above all else everything that's ever been showed about schooling has showed that early childhood education is the best single thing any government can do to ensure that a child ultimately ends up with a, in a position where they can get a good paying job down the road. So that isn't saying everything's a priority, that's saying this is the priority. And you don't need to therefore automatically say other things aren't priorities, they're just not as high a priority as the thing that you're going to invest in. And governments have always done that. They've never said that, that something is not a priority. They just ignore it for a while. And so by definition, I guess it's not a priority, but they don't explicitly say so
0: say it, it isn't. Hugh, I want to come back to your point and hear from everybody because we are, of course, we know, totally dependent on the U.S. in terms of trade and, and when they're healthy, we're healthy and vice versa. Uh, economically speaking, we've heard Janet Yellen uh, recently say, she's Biden's Treasury Secretary, um, that she wants all countries to agree on a global minimum, minimum, minimum tax rate uh, so that we don't have other countries uh, potent. Business from us um, that you know everybody said oh that's an interesting idea and then people started to say no no just be, you know we might want to be a low tax uh, venue to try and make sure that we can create jobs for our people too we've got as we mentioned earlier the issues with China that we have been living high or on the hog than we might have ordinarily shopping at dollar stores and Walmarts because of cheap um, Chinese goods. And if we have to produce this ourselves, including PPE and vaccines, it's going to cost us. Like, where do you see that relationship uh, on those bigger issues going?
2: So um, let me just deal with the, the issue of balance for a moment. The mythology in Canada, I think, before Trump came down was that uh, our taxes are way higher than the Americans. The Americans have a kind of tax-free, no money, don't spend any money on government. They don't have universal health insurance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The truth is, and we can have a debate as to how this happened, our corporate tax level when Trump came in was lower than the corporate tax level in the United States. Mm -hmm. So he was, in some respects well-advised to try to reduce America's corporate tax for competitive reasons. The problem is the way he did it and the instruments he chose produced huge upside for the top 1% of the population and almost no measurable benefit for middle-class working Americans at all. So that says to us that in terms of tax measures, part of how she can set up some guardrails, as Michael referenced, is to talk about where there has to be tax reform at the high end in Canada. And we have a fair ways to go before we run into any competitive difficulties with our major competitor, namely the United States. Mm-hmm. So that's number one. Number two, I would argue that if she is not able to say we have an inner circle of priorities, that we're going to deal with now, we're going to have other priorities we're going to address as the economy expands and we can afford it. If she fails to do that, then she gets into a bargaining, a bargaining shootout with the NDP, because you know the NDP is not going to create priorities in terms of social expenditure that is more important than the other. So I think that's her opportunity to set up a kind of dynamic where fiscally responsible progressives will say, well, she gets it, and for all his good intentions, Jagmeet Singh, as so far, doesn't get that sense of balance. So I think that's number one. Hmm. Number two, on China, I often say to my friends, let's remember, for all that they did to uh, products coming out of the West, uh, for all the tariffs they imposed on, on various uh, uh, grains and pulses coming out of the West hmm. and all the rest, we ship more to the United States in a week and back and forth than we do to China in an entire year. So we have to keep that sense of perspective. The Chinese thing, well, for a whole bunch of reasons, including the humanitarian issue of the two Michaels, is deeply compelling and enraging in some respects. In economic terms, they are not half as important to us as we are to others and others are to us in the broad range. So I think the government needs to lay out some of that and stop being so tippy toe with the Chinese because we're afraid they're going to yeah. put a tariff on our cars. Spare me. Yeah. You know, and I think that's part of where I think their their angst is a little bit unproductive, because I think Canadians, frankly, think that when uh, the Chinese do certain things, uh, either in terms of human rights or rule of law or in terms of you know, capricious arrest of people who did nothing other but visit the country lawfully. Uh, we should be a little more tough-minded than we have been. And and I think the notion that the prime minister doesn't go there, maybe it's for for um, uh, reasons of the inheritance of the Trudeau of, uh, affinity for China yep. from his dad. Who knows? Uh, I think he's, he he le- limits the sense of Canadians' belief in the acuity of their
0: government on issues like yeah. foreign policy. Jerry, I know you were trying to jump in there. Um, was I OK? Then I will. Um, <laughs> it I, looked like it. It looked like okay. it. It uh, sounded like it.
3: I was trying to figure out what I wanted to say. Um, I, I, I don't agree with here's one where we don't agree. Uh, I don't agree with Hugh about China, even though I have stats on uh, trade I know are, are real. Uh, I think there's no doubt that this is China's century coming with unpredictability that that no one can now even come close to foreseeing. Uh, Put it uh, another way to pull back for a second, we now have both a pandemic and a competitor uh, for world domination that we can do little about it appears or uh, at the very best, uh, we don't know how to handle and we cannot predict for 30 seconds What's the likely outcome? But I think most Canadians, uh, and I'm one of them, I'm no China expert, I try to follow as I can, uh, that step by step, the Chinese are moving from China throughout all of South Asia. Mm-hmm. And South Asia is not like uh, North America. South Asia is, uh, is several billion people. Um, uh, it, it's some of the biggest countries in the world. It's India, it's Indonesia. Uh, that's what's happening in Hong Kong. Um, and they are moving out across through the Middle East. Uh, that's what the belt and uh, whatever it is thing that nobody can understand is. And they're investing billions of dollars across Africa, making friends there. Um, and we, we, have, we have no way of combating that. We have no way of knowing how to anticipate that. Uh, and, and I, for one, do not know where that lands us in 50 or 60 years uh, or, those sooner, two grand- yeah. or sooner. Those two grandkids of mine, Michael, will still be, will only be adults uh, in 50 or 60 years, not as if their life will be over. Uh, so this is going to have repercussions on, uh, on today's generation and We have no way of dealing with
0: that is the bigger picture, Michael, which is we have always been uh, tied to the US and and they're our largest trading partner and we theirs and all that kind of um, fact that we know. (laughs) And if if China really is emerging, and I don't think anybody disputes this as the next superpower or call it whatever we want to call it, then we have to be anticipating that. On the other side, Hugh's right. We've got to break this, and we talked about it last time, uh, the naivete that we have toward China, that if we're somehow nice to them and don't say anything rude that they'll they'll let the two Michaels go, uh, that we we can't make a decision about boycotting the Olympics because that might offend. You know, it does seem to be the big issue of our time.
1: Well, it is. And and it does require, frankly, uh, some courage. Now, uh, you have to ask why the heck it's taken over two years to deal with the with an extradition request that was made uh, from the the yeah. finance, uh, the CFO of uh, Huawei. I mean, uh, it, it, that is absolutely. I can't think of any more ridiculous than uh, than an extradition request that took that long, because th- that gets you immediately into the two Michaels issue. But I think I think yeah. he was right. I think we've got to show a little bit more guts than we have, uh, and not just appear to always be. Tiptoeing around now—that doesn't mean necessarily you—you know—you do something that's so so outrageous that it makes them go bananas, but it does mean that you you got to stand up at some point for some things, and some of the things that are going on in China, particularly in the human rights area, are such that I think you have to have the guts to 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 stand up and not let. Uh, economics be the thing that's going to bother, bother you because, as Huey says, it's a very small part of our economy.
3: Um, Human rights is a very small part of our motivating drive as government. Yeah, exactly. I think. Um, I, I would also argue for what it's worth that there is a
2: way to have a civil, rationalized, rational, and disciplined relationship with the Chinese. There's a series of issues, the environment, sharing of medical information, technical scientific work. Their students come to Canada in droves and it's a huge value to the Canadian educational system. Um, we don't have to agree with what China does internally. They probably, we don't particularly want them to take a position like Charles de Gaulle that Quebec should have the right to separate. So we can understand why they're a little uptight about us on Tibet and all of that. But having said all that, you can still have a relationship that is based on some frank some frank realities where you're prepared to work together and some no go zones where you're just not going to go because you can't do anything about it.
0: That's what I'm trying to say. Like, what what is going to be this tougher stance? Should we say uh, no Chinese funding of universities? Should we send students home? Not that they're to blame, but to send the message to the Communist Party to. We should simply. (laughs) We
2: should simply say, Huawei, have a good time, not here. So at least make the decision on Huawei. Huawei.
0: Okay. It's
2: got nothing to do with Meng Wanzhou. For all I know, she she is completely justified and her lawyers are correct and the U.S. cropped up stuff that's of no substance or justification. I don't have a view on that other than I agree with Michael. Letting this go on for two years is just incompetence on the part of the Crown attorneys who are acting on behalf of the united states of america you can't blame her attorneys because defense attorneys are there to get their person out and to keep on arguing yeah that's their job <laughs> so i think some discipline in the process and by the way i agree with Aaron on tool on this we should be joining with the countries of the quad india australia and others in the region so that the chinese understand that as they continue to maneuver to sustain their legitimate area of influence, we're not troubled. But if they're going to expand into areas which impinge on the sovereign rights of other countries, we actually are troubled. And we're prepared to engage with our allies to bring some discipline to that discussion. Jerry?
0: We did it with
2: the Russians on detente. There's no reason we can't do it here. Who would have known it was
0: so easy? (laughs) No, but really, Jerry, what what do you want to see them do? I
3: have no idea. Okay. No, oh, I have nothing but sympathy for them. You sit around the table and you say, let's do this. Somebody else says, if we do this, they'll do that. Yeah. Uh, and that checker game, chess game goes on uh, until the end of the cabinet meeting. And then they go out and have a drink because they don't know what to do. I certainly don't know what to do. No one wants to do. If we knew what to do, we'd be doing it.
0: Well, presumably, or or maybe we we somehow thought it was going to happen that our ambassador was going to magically work them out with all his McKinsey connections. It hasn't worked. Oh,
3: I think if you depend on magic, you're going in the right direction.
0: Yeah. All right. Can, can we just change topics for a little bit here? I just want to ask a couple of things because um, Prince Philip's death is, um, is, is not going to, Change the world, but it does put a focus on the monarchy, um, along with the Harry and Meghan interview and all of this. Hugh, I know you're probably closer to the monarchist amongst the group here. Is is the uh, future of the monarchy safe? Is it going to change? Do they have to skip Charles and go to William? Like, where are we?
2: I think in a, in the ultimate perhaps irony, um, his Royal Highness. Prince Philip's death may have a very salutary effect on the general view of the monarchy because you can already see a huge outpouring of legitimate sentiment mm-hmm. in many parts of the Commonwealth, not just in the United Kingdom but elsewhere. I mean, I you know here in Kingston on the morning he died, all our flags were down at half mast before nine a.m. Mm-hmm. in the morning. Yeah, uh, and so and then the family coming together, which you know has its dynamics to it, but nevertheless. So I think in terms of the short term issues, it's probably a stabilizing effect. And in that sense, helpful in terms of the viability of the institution going forward for Canada. Look, the United Kingdom can get rid of the monarchy more easily than we can. <laughs> they just need a motion in the House of Commons and the House of Lords. That is true. You have to get. Every, every legislative body in Canada, as Michael will recall from the <laughs> amendment, formula, for which I blame him personally, by the way. Um, but we'll go but to him shortly. Of Canada, of the Senate of Canada, every yep. provincial legislature. Yep. And there's not a chance we could do that. So wherever the monarchy ends up, they'll still be with us. <laughs> and I'm, as a monarchist, I'm delighted with that. Because I, you know what? When I see elected presidents, you know, elected heads of state. <laughs> Trust me. And if you look at the top 20 countries in the world in terms of quality of life, stability, economic performance and all the rest, the monarchies are at the constitutional monarchies, democracies, but with a constitutional monarchy head way better than elected heads of he state. So I, that's
0: Hugh is definitely vying for the Pollyanna title, but we'll <laughs> so you mark, mark
2: me down as undecided on this
0: one. I, I have one to add.
3: This. Yeah. Can, I, can I tell a story? Yes, I. I When I was uh, doing my work, my graduate work, I lived in in England and one morning, it was a weekend, uh, I went to uh, Windsor Castle to tour to see what what, what I could see. And strangely enough, it was all open. And if you see on television, there's a long, long path from one end that you can see all the way to the door of the castle. And that's the road you drive in. And as I was walking along that road towards the uh, castle itself, a big, huge, glorious Rolls Royce pulled up right beside me and opened the window. And who was driving but the Queen by herself? And she said, Good morning. And I said, Good morning. She said, How's Hugh? <laughs>
0: Stop it. Okay, now you really you're now you're just. Uh, we it. thought that was going to be a good story, and now it, you've I'm just made it up. In all the sure. years
1: I've known my, in all the good. years I've known him, his humor just gets worse and worse. So I think we just <laughs> uh, look. I don't think the monarchy matters one way or the other to lots and lots of Canadians, but there is a small not group of Canadians. I mean, he's one, but there, it's a lot bigger than that uh, to whom it matters. So even if Canada could get rid of the monarchy, I don't know, given all the other problems and issues of importance of of the day, I don't know why any government would provoke a debate over something that uh, is hugely emotional. So it wouldn't be a rational debate. Hugely emotional to a whole lot of Canadians and a whole lot of other Canadians are indifferent about there's very few who are sort of adamantly opposed to it. So I think nothing would change, even if it was possible to change it. Although, as you point out, it's impossible to change it.
0: Which it's not. Yes, exactly. OK, um, and this I'm just going to throw this out because I uh, I know that you'll all have a thought on it. So we see all these big corporations deciding to uh first major league baseball saying we're leaving Georgia we're leaving Atlanta we're going where where there is a, a huge black population and we're going to Denver where there's not a huge black population to give them all the money and the jobs while we protest what's happening uh to the black community in the U.S. the companies have all uh jumped on board to say yes they're going to the, the big corporations have decided this uh kind of the the corporate wokeism, as somebody has referred to this. This is about an election law, as far as I can tell, that is pretty similar to ours, which says you should show some ID when you vote. Um, is that a concept that we've kind of lost? Hugh, what do you think on this?
2: Well, I, I think if you, um, if you look at the history from Reconstruction after the Civil War till uh, really Lyndon Baines Johnson, The truth of the matter is that there's been a consistent effort on the part of the Republican Party to suppress the black vote. And they've done it for everything from where they put voting stations to what the rules are to when you can vote and when those rules were changed because of covid. Yeah, by state legislatures and others, because that's how they run their elections. So people could vote by mail and vote early and vote over longer hours and vote by driving through. That was done so people could vote in the middle of a of a serious pandemic. And they did. And they had a record for them turnout. And now the Republicans have figured out this is not a good trend. So we now have to keep on acting not only in Georgia, but in 23 other states To limit voting hours, to make it tougher, to have people bring more than one ID in some cases, to make sure people are not given water when they're standing and waiting to vote on a hot day, so as to keep low-income people who, by the way, as is the case in Canada, more low income people in the United States are black or indigenous or people of color, as is the case here. And the less of those people who vote, the more chance the
0: Republicans are to save some of the furniture. But 33 states in the U.S. and our country, it, it's it's a principle. Do you do you not have to show ID to vote? Yeah. To-
2: but, 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 but Pam, that's not the only issue. No, You're okay. adding other things to get it. Exactly. In the
1: way. I, you, you raised the wrong question about the Georgia. Bill. What you have to okay. understand is two things. First of all, Hughes did on the Republicans have concluded that if everybody in the United States voted who was allowed to vote, they would not win another election, that their base is shrinking. Mm. The base yep. of the yep. Democratic Party is going up. And so the only way, since they are not don't appear to be willing to compete on ideas, the only way Uh, that they can decide to solve. The problem is to reduce the number of people who can vote against. it. The bad part of the Georgia law, and let's apply it to this last election, is that it includes a provision which says that if the legislature concludes that the election results uh, are impacted by fraud, the legislature, politicians, conclude that. Mm -hmm then the legislature can vote to send a different set of electors to uh, all the, of elect- the College of Electors than represented by uh, the actual vote. In other words, this law allows the, the Georgia legislature, which is heavily, heavily uh, Republican, to do exactly what Donald Trump wanted them to do. And and they wouldn't have to have any evidence. They just have to conclude among themselves that uh, they don't like the election results. So what we're going to do is we're going to say it was fraudulently uh, obtained and we will go and and change the result. That's the part that's really, really dangerous. And if that.
0: So not the voter ID, because I got to say, I personally think we should have some identification to vote.
1: The voter ID. And and of course, that, that. but so some of those things may be irritating and some of those things may be a little bit tougher, but that's not the root cause of the problem. Um,
3: okay. you, you listen Jerry. to Mike and, uh, and Hugh, and you feel as if you're in some kind of time warp. This is a conversation that could have been had, that in fact was had, uh, when the United States was formed in 1776, when Black people were considered only three-fifths of a vote for the purpose of counting uh, electoral votes, um, or you could have had the Civil War, which was 150 years ago, or you could have had the uh, political the Politics Act that Lyndon Johnson passed in 1965 uh, after he took over from uh, from Kennedy. It is it is saying that we are a white country and we are going to say a white country and we're going to do it any way we possibly can. Never mind uh, kneeing Men, black men in the neck. Never mind any of that trivial stuff. The point is that we're keeping power, and if we have to go back to lynching, well, the knee in the neck is a form of lynching. Uh, then we'll do that too. And when you when you think that this is really happening, and that half the United States at least uh, approve of it happening, uh, then it just seems to me uh, terrifying beyond words.
1: Pam, the the best one way to look at this problem is. The U.S. is just beginning to come to grips with what we came to grips with around 1970, which was the emergence of multiculturalism, the emergence Mm -hmm. of different cultures, of different people, of different colors. And so we've had a 50-year head start on them. The U.K.'s had a 50-year head start on them. And they are just coming to grips with that. And the people who are in the white increasingly uh, growing minority, shrinking, sorry, minority uh, are suddenly coming to grips. As you remember, some of the stuff that took place in the early 1970s about multiculturalism in Canada, uh, people don't want to give up that power. And that that's what this is all about. Inevitably, uh, it will, um, It will happen that they will lose because the the birth rates and immigration will will make it impossible for the whites to maintain their absolute, complete control on power. But it could take a long time if a lot of these state laws are allowed to go into effect.
0: Is it the role of the corporation to do What what they're doing? All of them, whether it's the Major League Baseball, whether it's Delta, whether it's Amazon, it doesn't matter. They're they're embracing these issues and taking stands for part of their branding process, if we can put it that way.
2: Here here is what's happening about 10 years ago on Wall Street and on Bay Street and in, in the city in London. Um, the financial analysts began to look at corporations in terms of their level of environmental responsibility. What liabilities did they face? What were they doing? And those companies that were beginning to address that responsibly did not have the value of their stock discounted in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. Those who weren't did get their stock discounted. We had that happen with Inco over acid rain when they didn't want to put in the high-end scrubbers that Ontario wanted to put in in the 70s and 80s. Finally, it was a couple of analysts in Wall Street who said we're going to have to discount their stock by 30% because they're not in compliance with Ontario regulations in terms of emissions. We now have a new phenomenon, which I think is constructive, called um, ESG, equity and, and, uh, and sustainability and governance, where government companies are being judged by how they deal with those issues. So for a company to say in a state where it is based like Delta or Coca-Cola or the Bank of America, we don't give a damn if black people are losing their votes, none of our business, not on anymore. It's not acceptable. They will pay a price on the value of their stock. So quite aside from wanting to do the right thing and perhaps from some perspectives being a touch too woke, they have a financial incentive
3: to manage this properly, which is how you see the world changing pretty dramatically. And there's an issue uh, that we know little about in Canada, I think it's fair to say, because it's, uh, it gets very little uh, uh, public exposure here in our media. And that's reparations mm-hmm. across Africa, uh, in the black parts of Europe, uh, and in a lot of the United States, black people and some of their non-black friends are demanding reparations for the centuries, not years, but centuries of exploitation on which these corporations were built, on which the countries were built entirely. Slavery, uh, uh, not being able to vote, um, all the redlining of housing, uh, the minimum wages, all the ways that uh, people of color have been exploited uh, over the years. Uh, And there is a strongish movement uh, that it's time the corporations paid those reparations. Uh, Here's uh, a fact I like best of all of it, is when slaves were begun to be free in early 19th century West Indian West Indies, and when the French, for example, freed their slaves on what became Haiti, uh, the, they paid reparations to the slave owners, not to the slaves who they freed, yeah. but to those who owned the slaves and were losing their slaves now. And that's been the story in, an essence, in an but, essence since then. And I think these guys are trying to get out ahead of it.
0: we've had this debate in this country uh michael and you know this the the trudeau the father versus trudeau the son um we should not be paying for the sins of our fathers we should not be saying we're sorry for crimes we did not commit um that that debate is still there
1: well it is and and uh, the saying sorry i've never never had problems with that because if uh If you say sorry for something your father did, that's one thing. If you start to get into paying reparations, I think you're into a much, much more complex problem. How do you draw the line? Where is Mm -hmm. how much money does it cost? And it it doesn't get you looking forward. It gets you looking backwards. So I don't have to be in favor of that, whereas I have no problem with with, uh, the apology.
2: Except to say this, um, when Stephen Harper rose in the House of in the House of Commons and apologized for residential schools, something which took place long before yeah. he ever got elected to Parliament and the first prime minister in the history of the country to apologize for something which began back when began before Sir John A. MacDonald became prime minister of, of Canada. Um, there was also a plan that was launched at that point for reparations for those people who had been in those schools and a commission to determine the eligibility for those reparations, plus a truth and reconciliation commission to look into it on the assumption that that was a good way to go forward. I think part of what we're going to have to come to terms with, with respect to our First Nations brothers and sisters, is very simply this. Reconciliation is good. Doing away with discrimination is better. Making sure these quality of opportunity is great. But at some point, If we're going to keep on standing up at every public meeting to say we are not on our own land, we're on their land, we're going to have to figure out some measure of royalties and other things for resources that are coming from there, where they get a fair amount of distribution, call it what you like, so that they are benefiting in some way from what happened in the past, but in a way that has to go into financing the future, I agree. And I think that's one of the policy challenges we will face but, as but a country, can, and I think it's a good thing to do. As we
0: sit here and talk about budgets and how to deal with with the uh, the spiraling costs of even dealing with today's emergencies, how do we fit in paying for yesterday's uh, crisis as well, Michael? Do you, well? Can I, we do that? I mean,
1: I'll tell you uh, the sit the health situation, the water situation. Uh, Bridge and our reserves are a lot more important than reparations. They are for people today who are really sick. I mean, it's, it's sick today. It is scandalous, absolutely scandalous, what yeah. the federal government has allowed to happen in both the healthcare field and the water field, just to name two. Uh, and we've got we've got to deal with those issues. And if you're going to spend money, that's the place to spend it.
2: Pam, we now spend billions of dollars a year in the Department of Northern Affairs, Mm -hmm. Indian Development, Crown Services, all of that, right? Which is, is, it is what it is, despite the good people working in those departments trying to be helpful. What we really should be doing is saying to our First Nations and brothers and sisters, you set up a not-for-profit corporation owned and run by you with appropriate audit and other standards, and we will flow the money that used to flow to that department to you for you to spend on water and education and university scholarships for the kids and all the rest. And that'll be a basic multi-billion dollar transfer annually. And then you can do that to form partnerships with companies and investors and generate your own income flow. But we should start by stopping the old colonial model that says, you know what? We know best. We know what they need. We'll we'll shape the programs and they'll come to us because they have no choice. We've got to get
1: that is they've got to be accountable for how the money is spent. As you will recall, they fight being accountable all the time.
0: No, that's a really uh, important point. You know what? We're going to save that whole discussion now for the next time that we reconvene this. It's just it's been wonderful talking to you. I miss this having these these this perspective the uh, experience you bring to bear on these issues that we're still struggling with today and seems to me we were struggling with it back then when we talked about it on Thursday morning so thank you all very very much I hope to talk to you soon see you soon thank you Pam that's thank great thank you. Thank you, Pam. Michael oh, I didn't like Thanks. the story
3: about the queen and you no
0: we didn't like that story because it wasn't true it was a good story
3: no I Oh, truth. <laughs> when did we start bringing truth <laughs> into these? It,
1: it was coming from Jerry, so that's not really it. <laughs> <just really started. laughs>
0: Good to see you all. Thanks again. Nice to you. Michael Kirby, Jerry Kaplan, Hugh Siegel on the issues of the day. That's it for no nonsense this time around. We'll talk to you soon.